There has been no series that I have spent as much time studying for as this one. I don't need a pat on the back. I'm just telling you it's been two years of books and sermons and lectures and interviews and conversations. And I feel like I've barely scratched the surface. And that ought to encourage you, not intimidate you. I just want to prep you real quick that there is more written on this subject than any other that I know of about the Bible. And there's a lot of subjects in the Bible. That's huge because if you go out there and Google Revelation, if you go out there and Google end times, if you go out there and look up the things that I'm talking about, you will likely come up with a lot of websites, most of which are not helpful for you. But you won't necessarily know what to do with what you're seeing, and then you'll freak out, and then you'll send me emails. And I want to save you and me from this experience. In all seriousness, I need to say this real quick. Scholars do not all agree about the best way to interpret this. We all agree on one thing. Jesus is king. He is good. And he is coming again. Now, past that, depending on how you interpret this book, depends on what you do with it. And the principles you start with, they lead you somewhere. We're going to get into those kinds of conversations later, okay? I just want to prep you real quick. We're breaking Revelation into three parts. Part one here, we're starting today. It's a seven-week series going through the first three chapters. The rest of it won't take quite that long, but if you don't lay this foundation, you build the rest of the book on a bad foundation. Everything else in the book is in light of what happens in the first three chapters. So we're going to really dig into that, make sure we get that. The other thing we're going to do then is we're going to pause. We're going to take a breather and go, <sighs> okay. And then we're going to come back after we do another series. We'll come back and pick up at chapters 4 through, I haven't exactly decided, but we'll stop maybe 18 or 19 in that range. We'll pause again. We'll do Christmas. And then we'll come back again in the new year and look at heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, and what does it mean for us today. So that's how we're looking at Revelation. And I just have to say this. If you're sitting here today, if you missed it and you are now online listening to this service, I just want you to know this. We are not going to fight about this. I love you too much. Unity in the body of Christ is what Jesus died for. We are not going to fight about this. So if you're sitting here listening right now, you have agreed, right? We're not going to fight about this. We're not going to argue. We're not going to bicker. If you want to have healthy conversations, seriously, type up an email and send it to jlewellen at kingswaychurch.org. <laughs> I am going to stay focused on the task at hand. I will do my best to describe to you the way different people interpret different passages. I will do my best to do them justice, and I will tell you where I land and why when it's necessary, and then we're going to move on because it's too important, the stuff we're going to be looking at. Now, let me ask you this question. Is Revelation a blessing to you? How many of you say, yes, absolutely, Revelation is a blessing to me? How many of you say, I want it to be? But it isn't. I tell you what, my first contact with Revelation, I remember I go over to a Christian home. Dad was an elder with the church all the time, all the time, far too often probably. And because I was at the church all the time, I heard lots of sermons. I can't think of a single sermon I heard on Revelation, not one, until I got off to Bible college. Not one. Now, there may have been references, but I never noticed it. There was never a digging into it. So when I walked away from Jesus and then came back somewhere around 16, I decided, like most people, I'm going to start reading my Bible. God moved to me. I want to know this king who loves me and saves me. And so I started in the best book of the Bible. I opened up to Matthew. 
And I just started reading Matthew, and I started studying that. Then I went to Luke, and there are these apocalyptic passages in Matthew and Luke. Matthew, I think it's 24, 25. I think it's Luke 14. And, and they're kind of like looking towards future things, and what do they mean? And they freak you out. So after that, I decided, I'm going to know what's going to happen in the end when Jesus comes back. So I opened up the book of Revelation. I remember being in high school at the time, and I was reading through the book, and my brain hurt. I was like, what in the world? And one night after work, I was a busboy at a restaurant. I remember driving home, and there was a red moon. And that freaked me out. I started repenting of things I wasn't sure I did. I just wanted to make sure me and Jesus were good. I found out later that's called a harvest moon. It's normal. I didn't know that. And that's what Revelation does to us. I heard one, uh, the professor of Ozark Christian College, Dr. Matt Proctor, he said this. He said, it's like imagine driving into a neighborhood, and over off to the left, you see this beautiful white house with a white picket fence, and, you know, 2.5 kids outside. It's the perfect family, and, and that's Matthew. And then you drive down the road a little further, and over on the right side is this beautiful ranch home, you know, 3,000 square feet up, and 3,000 down, and it's, that's Luke. And you, you start to enjoy all these. And you see maybe some, some older homes or some newer homes that need some work, and it's like the book of Acts. There's some work being done in those. And then you peer down at the end of the road, and there's the haunted house down there and it's got blackout windows and spider webs and you're like kids don't go near that house I don't I don't know what to do with it and that's the book of Revelation and here's what Revelation says about itself open with me we're going to jump forward then we'll jump back Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. Apparently, the book of Revelation was intended to be a blessing for those who hear and obey. And so my goal through this series is just to give you some handles to be able to read the book and get the blessing intended for you. That's my hope. So let's start, let's jump right in now. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. I just want, I forgot to say this real quick. If you have a, a tablet, if you have a, a phone with Wi-Fi or internet, feel free to open it up. You can go to the app store, whichever kind you use, Android, it doesn't matter, Google, it doesn't matter, uh, iTunes, and you can download the Kingsway Church app. There are going to be lots of notes in this series, and many of them I won't have time to use just because I'm going to always put more in there that I have time for. It'll be like an extra way for me to communicate with you. I highly recommend you download it. And by the way, I'm putting books in there. I'm quoting books in there. I don't even always agree with what the book says, but I just want you to know there's a plethora of stuff out there, and the stuff that you're reading, it's all well within the Orthodox Christianity, okay? So there we go. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This is a revelation. By the way, scholars, really, I don't it bother me, but scholars will be quick to point out how many revelations are happening here in chapter 1, verse 1? One. How many of you said, oh man, I was reading the book of Revelations? No, it's one revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the event, events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Right there is pretty much a summary of the whole book. Chapter 1 is called a prologue, verse 1 and 2. It's a setup to the whole book. There it is. This is from God to Jesus to an angel to John. Now, scholars debate who John is. I don't even care to tell you about the debate because I don't think it's all that big of a deal. Is it John, an elder in the church, or is it John the apostle? I land on John the apostle. If you don't, that's fine. I don't care. The whole point is it's from God to Jesus to an angel to John now for us and for these seven churches we're going to take a look at. 
John the Apostle was exiled to an island called Patmos. I'll show it to you in a minute, not yet. He's exiled to an island called Patmos. According to church history, uh, they tried to kill John like they killed all the other apostles, and it didn't work. For what they did for him is they stuck him in water, and they tried to boil him to death, but he didn't die. He wouldn't stop talking about Jesus, so they sent him off to Patmos and said, fine, live alone by yourself in a lot of pain, and now isolated from your friends, your family, your loved ones. And while he's on that island, Jesus comes to him, and he reveals this message to him through an angel, through a vision for John to write down and share with all of us. It is a message of hope to hurting people. Depending on where you date the book, people date it in different places, and the reason they date it there is based off their interpretation of the book. So some people date it as early as the 60s AD, others up to 95, 96 or so AD, and there's a difference. If you date it in the 60s, you're looking at the emperor Nero, and if you're dating it in the 90s, you're, you're looking at the emperor uh, Domitian. Both of them are Roman emperors, both of them are cruel and evil, and both of them persecuted Christians. Domitian's persecution was actually greater than Nero's persecution. So if you date it in the 60s, they're under this intense persecution from Nero. People are being arrested, thrown in prison, sometimes killed for their faith. If it's Domitian, same thing, but even more so. The book of Revelation is written to groups of people who are hurting and suffering because of their faith. And not only that, but they are being tempted to quit on Jesus because of the persecution. And the places where the persecution isn't getting to them, the temptation is. And there is rampant temptation especially in, in cities like Ephesus and Laodicea. There are these temptations to turn back to the old way of living, to turn to sin, to picture Jesus as a nice, cuddly teddy bear. We have this little teddy bear at our house. It's just a little thing. It's white. It's got a little red ribbon around its neck, and if you squeeze his tummy, it sings, Jesus loves me, this I know, with a little kid voice. You ever, anybody got one of those? It's the cutest thing in the world. My boys have all loved it. They squeeze it, and I think sometimes we think of Jesus like that. He's this cute cuddly bear who just snuggle up to him and just full of grace and full of mercy and full of love and then we open revelation and we go what happened to cuddly teddy bear jesus he became like chucky bear like what happened <laughs> and we don't know what to do with it revelation it says right there chapter one verse one this is a revelation it's the greek word apocalypsis sound like any word you've ever heard before apocalypse or apocalyptic. And here's the problem. We don't know what to do with the word. Because in our day, where we talk about apocalypse, we're talking about it's like global warming that was so bad that snow took over the earth and most of the earth died. And so we think of the apocalypse that way. Or we think of like the zombie apocalypse, you know? <laughs> Everybody's going around eating each other and spreading viruses. They're going to turn you into, you know, zombie nation or whatever. And you got Brad Pitt running around killing people and this is what we think of when we think of apocalypse. So then we pick up the Bible and we go, oh, this is an apocalypse. We're like, oh, this is what's happening. Do you know that's not at all what that word meant to them? See, in John's day, the word apocalypse meant something. It, had, it was part of a, a, a genre, if you don't know what that means, kind of be like a, a grouping of writings that fit a certain type or style of writing. And, and there's a lot more I'll say about this as we go forward. But just for today's sake, I just want you to understand there is this whole context of apocalyptic literature and the apocrypha and the pseudepigrapha and words you may have never heard of, but they're out there. They're even in books like Daniel, and I think it's Mark 13, and, and you see them even in the Bible, but there's this style of writing, and Revelation fits into that style. And if you don't understand that style, then you don't understand the book, and then you try to read it through your lens, and it doesn't make sense. And this would be like somebody 2,000 years from now studying our writings today and trying to understand science fiction. 
Wherever we are 2,000 years now, whether we're in heaven, Jesus hasn't come back yet, or whatever, but if that hasn't happened, imagine somebody trying to understand sci-fi today. They're going, what are Jedis? Like, Sabretooth, which, by the way, is the best sci-fi film of all time, right up there next to Sharknado. But if you were to look at these things 2,000 years from now, you'd be like, what in the world is going on with those people? And Star Trek, and Star Wars, and like all these crazy things. It'd be like trying to interpret that 2,000 years from now, and you'd be like, I don't know what that is. But that's a fairly new, a fairly recent development in culture. This is apocalyptic literature in John's day. And in many ways, not always, he follows the pattern of apocalyptic literary writing. So now come back. Revelation Chapter 1, verse 3, let's read that again. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. Here's another word we don't fully understand. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses, blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. That's ironic. Okay, let me just use this analogy. I didn't use this in last service. I did in the first and the third. But let's just say that um, there's a prophecy. Let's say Jesus sends me a vision, okay? And it's real. I'm not just making it up, okay? And the vision is this. This Wednesday, a plane is going to leave Plainfield Airport. It's going to lose control, and it's going to crash into Applebee's in Avon at 12.03 p.m. Obey this prophecy. Go ahead. Obey it. Uh, what? What do you want me to do with that? Am I supposed to get on the plane? Am I supposed to stay away from Applebee's? Am I supposed to just believe it? Am I supposed to watch the news and go, oh, look, it happened? Prophecy in the Bible doesn't mean what we've interpreted it to mean today. When we think of prophecy today, we always think of prediction. In fact, there's a guy, his grandmother actually goes to our church. His name is Dr. Shane Wood. He's a professor at Ozark Christian College. And Dr. Shane Wood, who just got his doctorate in the book of Revelation, he did a study of the word prophesy, to prophesy, and prophecy in the scriptures throughout the whole entire Bible. And he found 17, roughly 17% of all passages where those three words are used actually refer to a prediction. The other 83% of the time, it communicates this, who God is, what God wants, and what he expects from us. So the word prophecy doesn't always, it can, it doesn't always equal a prediction. It can also equal who God is, what God wants, and what he expects from us. And in that context, it makes a lot more sense than to say, obey this prophecy. Because when we learn who God is, we learn what he wants from us, and he learns, we learn what he wants us to do. I could do that. I can't just fulfill a prediction. God's taking care of that. I don't even know what to do with that. But I could be obedient to all that God tells me to be obedient to. I love the way um, uh, Alan Johnson in the Expositor's Bible Commentary says this. Why did the Lord use a a method that seemingly makes his message so obscure? The answer is twofold. First, the language and imagery were not so strange to first century readers as they are to many today. Faced with the apocalyptic style of the book, the modern reader who knows little about biblical literature and its parallels is like a person who, unfamiliar with stocks and bonds, tries to understand the Dow Jones report. And some of you who do in financial investing for a living go, that person drives me nuts. That's kind of like what's going on here. So let's take a look at now the message that we are told to obey. Chapter 1, verse 4. 
This letter is from John to the seven churches in the provinces of Asia. Province of Asia. Asia, let's go ahead and show it to you. See this map here. This is not Asia like we think of Asia today, okay? This is Asia back in that day. But Asia today, we tend to think of China, maybe Japan, Korea, pick whatever Asian country you want. Asia in that day, if you were to look at the little map, you may see the little square down there. There's another little square inside the square, and there's a little dot in there. You'll notice that's what we call the Middle East. In fact, this is right in the heart of modern-day Turkey. So even though it's called Asia, Asia Minor, it meant something different then than we use the word in context today. And you'll notice that there's seven churches there. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and that's who chapter 2 and chapter 3 are written to. And there's Patmos, which is where John is. So he's exiled to this island. He's supposed to live out his last days. We actually know from history. We'll get to this more next week. He gets off the island. However, he lives there for a while, isolated and suffering. And he writes this letter to these seven churches called Revelation, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And the message is to go to them, to challenge them, and encourage them. Now, of these seven Seven churches, as we're going to see over the next six weeks, of these seven churches, two of them are totally commended by Jesus and encouraged by Jesus. It basically says, good job, keep it up, you're doing great. Five of them get rebuked by Jesus, and he says, you need to repent. Of those five, one of them gets no pat on the back whatsoever. That's Laodicea. He goes to them and he says, there's nothing good about you. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. We'll talk about what that means. But since you're neither, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because I don't even want anything to do with you. You need to repent. The other four get a commendation, a pat on the back. Hey, I know this about you. You're doing a great job. However, I have this against you. And what we see is Jesus, like a good God, a good father, a great boss, he mixes praise with rebuke. He's not just cuddly teddy bear Jesus, grace. He's grace and truth. And the truth that he speaks always comes with a promise. What we're about to see is there are uh, this description we're about to see of Jesus. And in this description, each part of the description is relevant for one of those seven churches that we'll dig into. And I'll explain all that as we go through it. And as Jesus is showing himself and revealing himself, what we learn is Jesus is here in our church just like he was in those seven churches. He walks among them. He knows their deeds. He's intimately aware of their lifestyles. And he's commending them where they're right. And he's rebuking them where they're wrong. And our goal as we go through this is to say, Jesus, where am I not like you? which of these seven churches represents me where do I need to course correct where do I need a pat on the back where do I need encouragement let's take a look now at Jesus Revelation chapter 1 verse 4 second half grace and peace to you from the one who is who always was and who is still to come from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ he is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. Just stop there for a second. There's a lot for us to dig into. What's partly going on here is you're going to see one number pop up over and over and over again. You'll actually see a lot of numbers. And there's this whole thing going on in Revelation. When we get to a number, you need to know that it has value beyond what you would normally think of. So when I say seven, you may think five plus two, three plus four, six plus one. It's a number. But in Revelation, as well as throughout the Bible, the number seven means something deeper than that, something more than that. It stands for completion. And this is kind of like revolutionary for some of you as you're studying the Bible. You're like, I don't even understand what that means. Like, why does that seven just mean seven? Well, because God's God and he does what he wants. But it has meaning. It has value. Let me give you an example. So why are there seven days in the week and not six? Why are there seven days in the week and not eight? 
because the number seven is the complete number of days that God ordained there needed to be. So he created for six, he rested on seven, and then he says, you do the same. You model what I did for you. And not only that, every seven years, give the land a break. And not only that, but seven times seven, every 49th year, we get to that 50th year, it's going to be the year of Jubilee because it's the perfect, perfect number. This is why we get to Daniel, I think it's chapter 9. In Daniel 9, we have this prophecy of the 77s. And then we get to Jesus Christ where the perfect year of Jubilee shows up. Are you with me so far? I hope some of you are like, your brain's hurt already. I know. The whole point is the number seven doesn't just mean seven. The number seven has a weight to it. It means completion, wholeness. If you were to look at that map again of the seven churches and you were to go back and study that area, you'd find out there's a lot more churches than that in the area. In fact, the church of Colossae, Troas, Colossae's there. You ever read the book of Colossians? Why is John not writing to them? Why, is he, why are they not included? They're suffering the same things the other churches are because the seven, the seven churches represent something whole, something complete. Remember when Jesus is asked about how many times we should forgive somebody in a day? Seven times? Hmm, not seven times. Seventy times seven times? Again, why? It's the perfect number of forgiveness. Forgive them wholly and completely. Jesus didn't intend for you to like start marking them off. My poor kids, they'd never be forgiven. Like, dude, that's 491 in one day. I'm sorry, go to your room. I don't want to see you ever again. Jesus is saying completely, completely. There's a weight to what he's saying. When you understand the weight, now you could come back to Revelation. And we see in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, there's a sevenfold spirit. Why is the spirit, the Holy Spirit, called the sevenfold? Because it's the perfect number. The Holy Spirit is perfect. He's complete. He's fully present in that moment. I hope we're getting to some interpretive work for you that I hope makes sense of some of these things. Notice this. Grace and peace to you from the one who, always, who is, always was, and who's still to come. You're going to hear this in different orders. He is present, he was in the past, and he is still yet to come. It's this idea of Jesus has always been. This is important. If you're facing intense persecution at the hands of Nero or Domitian, if you are at these, at these emperor's hands who are putting you in jail and arresting you and sometimes killing you, or, or if there's temptation and pressure and you want to quit, if these things are going on and you know that the God you worship, the king you worship, who's seated on his throne, was in the past long before this king came about. He's here right now while this king is reigning. And one day he'll come back again and establish his kingdom and his throne forever. Then you don't have to worry about what this king does to you. Because he has no power over you. Your king is bigger. And your king is better. Verse 5. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. If you're facing death for your faith in Jesus Christ, if that's a possibility for you, don't you want to know that somebody has already gone before you? I mean, come on, you know what this is like, right? You're having a hard time in your marriage, you and your spouse, you think it's near the end, and you go to one of your friends, and they've got the perfect family. You know what I mean? They've got the perfect marriage. Like, they've been married 20 years. They didn't even fight. I don't think they've ever had a fight before. They have plenty of income. Three perfect little kids. They never get in trouble in school. They always get straight A's. And you go to your friend. You say, I'm really struggling. We're really hurting right now. And your friend says, oh, it's all right. Don't worry. You'll pull through. You'll be okay. And you're looking at them. It's like, what would you know about hard times? And you do this right if, if you're sick. And let's say you have cancer. Your mom has cancer. I've heard this happens. 
And people come to you and they say, oh, man, I remember this one time I sprained my ankle and I had to go through physical therapy. And you're like, really? You're bringing an ankle to this conversation. Like, I get it. That's your pain. You don't know what pain is. And John says, but you worship a king who knows what pain is. You worship a king who was stabbed in the back by his friends, abandoned by those who loved him, crucified by his own creation. You worship a king who died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. He became the firstborn among many. In other words, because I've already gone before you, I've already suffered, I know your pain, I know your struggle, I know how hard this is. Remember me in the garden, Jesus would say? Remember that? Remember how I didn't quit and I pushed on? And remember I kept telling you guys, I could call this whole thing off, but I'm not going to because I want you to look at me and understand that I know what it feels like to go through what you're going through and I love you and I've already died and I've already raised and I was the first in your next. Revelation is a blessing because it is a message of hope for the hopeless. It's a message of encouragement to those who want to quit. It's a statement of love and rebuke from a king who says, I have more grace than you'll ever need, but you've got to come to me to get it. Let's take a look now. Verse, verse 6. Second half of verse 5. Let's start there. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. It's huge. This may be like the whole point to today. He made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory to him and power to him forever and ever. And all the people said, amen. We could stop the book of Revelation right there. That's the whole point. Everything goes to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. You may have missed this. God is doing something. God sent his son. He sacrificed his son to make you a kingdom of? Some of you weren't paying attention there. You might go back and look at this. Chapter 1, verse 6, to make you a kingdom of priests. And you don't know what that means because what you have in mind is the Catholic church. And i got to be honest. I have family who are Catholics, and I love them, and I believe I'll be in heaven with them. But the Catholic church messed this up for the rest of us. Because they made priests a paid position whereby you go and confess some sins and they tell you to do 12 Hail Marys and four push-ups or whatever they do, and then you're good to go. See, go back and read your Old Testament. And if you read your Old Testament, you'll learn that there was a high priest, Aaron, and his family. Only one high priest. Only one high priest. And that high priest pointed us to Jesus. But that high priest had a whole group of people called the Levites. They're from the tribe of Levi. See, the other 11 tribes of Israel, they were allowed to work and have land and create jobs, and they were to give money to the Levites, and the Levites were to care for the temple and perform the work of ministry in the temple, everything except for what the high priest did. And now all of that is to point to us today, where Jesus is our great high priest. There's no more high priest but Jesus, just like there's no more sacrifice. He's our sacrifice, but there's still a kingdom of priests. That's us. You want to know more about what God wants for you? Go read the book of Leviticus. You're like, oh, really? And here's the thing. Most of the reason we don't understand Revelation is because we don't know our Old Testament. In fact, this one, this one particular stat is quoted over and over and over again in commentaries. I love this. This comes from uh, uh, Mark Hitchcock. He says this, while it is certainly true that Revelation looks ahead and reveals the future, it also looks back and brings together all the threads running through the first 65 books of the Bible. 
Revelation contains 404 verses, and 278 of them allude back to the Old Testament. Did you catch that? Revelation has no direct quotations from the Old Testament, but contains a total of 550 allusions or references which appear in those 278 verses back to the Old Testament. So, a significant portion of Revelation brings together content from the Old Testament into a comprehensive sequence of events. This led Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation, in his book on Revelation, he writes this. This particular statistic that I just read to you posts a warning. No one has any business reading the last book who has not yet read the previous 65. It makes no more sense to read the last book of the Bible apart from the entire scriptures than it does to read the last chapter of any novel, skipping everything before it. Much mischief has been done by reading the Revelation in isolation from its canonical context. The book of Revelation brings it all together. In fact, Luther writes, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but he writes, he, he actually wanted the book of Revelation to not be included in the Bible because his theory was there wasn't anything new in there. Because the whole point is it's telling the same story in a very graphic way. But if you don't know the Old Testament, then you read the book of Revelation, you start freaking out. Because you don't understand what it's trying to communicate. And what Jesus is saying here is, I made you a priest. There's a work for you to do. I didn't just save you so you could sit around and be saved. I didn't just save you so you could indulge in sin. I washed you. I made you clean. I've made you my own. You're my kingdom. I got to work for you. Ephesians, we are saved by, through, we're saved by grace through faith. Keep reading that same chapter. You know what Paul goes on to say? For good works. We're not saved by grace through faith to sit around and indulge. We're saved by grace through faith to continue to do great things for Jesus in his name. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 there is all kinds of biblical reference here. I'll touch on some. I don't have time to touch on all of them. Verse 7, look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. Remember how Jesus leaves the earth? He's on the mountain. He's there instructing the disciples. He hops on the cloud elevator, rides up into heaven. He says, I'll come back the same way I left. Remember this? And here John is saying he's coming back the same way. Well, if you to go back, read Daniel. I believe you can also read Ezekiel. You can read some of those passages. You'll find that it's always been talked about. The judgment of the Lord was talked about as coming on the clouds. What John is doing is connecting dots for you. Yes, he's seeing something, but he's communicating something. He's saying something. The judgment of God is coming. That's part of what Revelation is about. And for those who have Jesus, that judgment brings hope. And for those who don't, We'll get to that one. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's the first and the last verse of the, or letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. So in other words, I'm telling you what it means. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last. Says the Lord God, I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. Notice how it starts with who is. I am here right now. Now, if you were to do this in, in order, you would say, he is the God who was, the God who is, and the God is still to come. And here, he's saying, no, I am the God who is who was and is still to come. I am present in your pain, in your suffering, in your temptation. Don't quit. You may think I'm not here. You may think I'm not involved. You may think that I'm absent or I've closed my eyes or I'm being deaf or I'm powerless to do anything to help you. I am here. I've always been here. I'm always going to be here, but I am here. That's a statement of faith and trust. Verse 9, and I, John, 
I'm your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. How many? Seven. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Do you know the very most popular title Jesus uses for himself? Son of Man. So he turns around and he sees seven lampstands. These are seven menorahs. We'll talk more about them as we go. I don't have time today. I don't know if I'll get time. But if you're curious later, later go read Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4. Read about the lampstands. That's what it's referring back to here. In Zechariah 4, you'll read about Zerubbabel. Read what it says about Zerubbabel and think of Jesus in that context. We'll keep going. Some of you are like, what? Your brain hurts. Keep moving. Verse 13. Move along here, kids. Nothing to see here. Verse 13. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Each of these things is something specific for one of the seven churches. We'll get to that over the next six weeks. But each of these things, as we look at them, it's relevant. It means something in their culture. It means something in Old Testament. It means something in apocalyptic literature. And we're going to look at those as Jesus addresses these seven churches. And the reason Jesus looks like this in this moment is because of that church. They need to know this. Whether it's the eyes that see all that's going on, or the double-edged sword that corrects and rebukes and punishes, or whether it's the feet of bronze that are made of purified metals, strong, firm, fulfilling Daniel's prophecies. All these things have meaning, and we'll get into them. But what I want you to see is the posture of John now. Take a look at John in verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet. As if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Hear how that keeps coming up again and again and again. John and Jesus, John in his book, the Gospel of John, he calls himself, this is a name he uses for himself, the disciple that Jesus loved. And in that story, we see John and Jesus are close, close friends. In fact, at one point, John and Jesus are there at the Last Supper. I've said this before, but John and Jesus are so intimately close. They're as close as two guys can be. And uh, literally, they're, they're up against each other at the Last Supper. So they're laying down. It's not like dinner sitting around the table. They're laying down, eating dinner. And they're very, very, very close in proximity to each other because they have a very close, loving friendship. And John hears this booming voice, and he turns around to see who it is. And he recognizes Jesus, but he is so terrified by what he sees that though this is his savior his christ and his lord this is no teddy bear to be squeezed he falls on his face in utter fear and jesus reaches over in all of his power and might and says get up john don't be afraid 
I may be all-powerful. I may be absolutely terrifying. I am the first and the last, though. And I got a job for you. This is huge. Because Jesus is revealing himself to John in such a way that as John is telling this story, think about this for a minute. There's no TV. There's no pictures. There's no video. There's no internet. I, I just blew some of your minds. John has to paint a picture so that when this letter goes to the seven churches, he can describe what he sees in such a way that they'll see what he's seeing and they'll be afraid too. And the reason they'll be afraid is because they'll understand what all this means. And then they'll be faced with a decision, the same one you and I are faced with today. Do I love him more than everything else? Am I more afraid of him than Domitian? Am I more afraid of losing him than I am my spouse or my family? Am I more afraid of not grasping what he has to offer me than things of this earth? Is there anything on this earth that I'm putting my hope in that I'm looking to pleasure or joy or hope or love for besides him? And if so, wow, he's so much more beautiful. He's so much bigger. He's so much stronger. Why would I do that? And John is trying to get them and he's trying to get us to gaze and fix our eyes upon him for just a moment and just hang on for just a moment and go, whatever it is that I'm putting before him, I need to dethrone that and put him on that throne. And look at what Jesus says to John. Verse 18, I am the living one. Yes, I died. But look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. When Jesus restores Peter and he says to him three times, Peter, go feed my sheep, Peter's still jealous. He's still struggling to figure it out. Well, Jesus, what are you going to do with him? He's jealous of John. He points at John. And Jesus says, Peter, what is it to you what I do with John? John's my servant. He's not yours. What? It's no business of yours. What if he gets to last until the end? What business is that of yours? And there's a reason. John lives older than everybody else. We'll dig into more of that in a future date. But you just need to know Jesus is now saying, John, you're hanging on here, and it's getting really hard, and it's getting hard for your people. It's getting hard for all people. I want you to encourage them. I'm the living one. Yes, I died, but look, I'm raised again. I'm alive. Jesus says at one point, I think it's Matthew 7. Forgive me, I didn't write down the chapter. Jesus says, do not fear the one who can, who can kill your flesh, who can hurt your flesh. Fear the one that after your last breath can throw you into hell. Fear him. And Jesus is saying here, fear me alone, and if you fear me alone, you got nothing to fear, because I got it. I'm going to take care of it. 19, write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and we'll start on those next week. I want to read this quote to you. I love this by Bruce Metzger in Breaking the Code about Revelation. He says this, The book of Revelation was composed and sent to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. At some point between A.D. 69 and 96, in order to this, to encourage them with the assurance that despite all the forces marshaled against them, victory was theirs if they remained loyal to Christ. Is Revelation a blessing? Maybe you don't fully get it yet. Let me give you one last try. Revelation is a blessing because Revelation puts the cap on the story of God as it points us forward. In the very beginning of the book of Genesis, if you were to go back and read this, now you're going to make me work from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to be here a while. I'm just kidding. 
In Genesis, God creates everything and it's good. And he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then on the last day, here, the sixth day, sorry, he creates man and woman. And he says, look, it's very good. And shortly after that, we get to just the next couple chapters and Adam and Eve sin. And things become broken. And now what we find in, Revel- or in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, Paul's telling us, now all of creation is broken. It doesn't work the way God originally intended for it to work. Yes, yeah, see, creation works with us. Have you, ever, have you ever been amazed at how we have the right food that our body needs to be healthy? Have you ever been amazed? at how the earth actually produces the chemicals that we need to find medicine and healing? Has it ever looked at you for a second and thought, okay, that doesn't make any sense if this is an all, all an accident. Why are the trees and the plants and the fruit working with us? What benefit do they get from this? But there's this unity about it, and yet it's disunified, it's broken. And what we find when we get to Revelation, when we look at the very end is, in the very end, everything is put back together the way it was supposed to be. And all of a sudden, creation is serving its purpose of taking care of the people, the creation, the other part of it. All of a sudden, the earth is serving us. There's a tree of life. The fruit from the tree of life is actually healing the nations. And there's no more pain. And there's no more sorrow. And there's no more uh, evil. Because all the evil people have been put out of the city. And only those who love Jesus Christ are inside the city forevermore living with each other in peace and in unity and in love, working together with their king and their lamb and their lion, serving him and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in him is our hope. And what we find is there, all of a sudden, everything from the past is gone. And we are made new. Is revelation a blessing? Yes. Because it tells us in the midst of everything else, hang on for the end. In the midst of everything else, I am coming soon. How soon? I don't know. But when he does, it's going to be awesome. And then he says this, Revelation 22, the very last chapter in the entire book. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We'll dig into this more when we get to these other passages just like this. Seas in the ancient world were chaotic. You can't control them. So chaotic that often the sea was used metaphorically to describe a life that was out of control. But when we get to heaven and we see God seated on the throne and Jesus seated there, right there with him, all of a sudden there's a sea flowing out from him and it's flat as glass. It doesn't even have a wave. Friend, let me just tell you this before I read the rest of this. Control is an illusion. You can't control your spouse. You can't control your kids. Can't control your boss or your employees or your life group leaders or members. You can't even control your own car. You may think you can until the brakes go out or you hit a pothole or somebody who's drunk comes across and hits you. You have zero control. But the one who makes the seas calm has total control. Revelation 22 is letting you know no matter what's going on, he's in control. Verse 2, it flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of this river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit. With a fresh crop each month, the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them. And they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. 
The Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. Jump down to verse 12. Look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Is Revelation a blessing? You bet it is. Because it's King Jesus died on the cross, raised from the dead, saying, anyone who wants to drink from my water, come. Yesterday I visited a man in the hospital who is a Kingsway member. He's going to die. We don't know if he has minutes, hours, or days, or weeks left. Last weekend, he was in a tragic car accident. He was thrown from the car. He's paralyzed from the chest down. He could barely breathe, and he has said, please don't give me any more treatment. Just let me go home and see Jesus. I went and visited with him, and I read him from Revelation 22, and I said, do you believe this is true? He said, yes. Do you believe Jesus is your Lord? Yes. Do you believe he's your only hope? Yes. He was struggling to get the words out. You could barely Make out what his lips were saying as he's fighting for each breath. He didn't plan a car accident that day. It just happened. And the reason I tell you this story is because I think it was three Sundays back he gave his life to Jesus. His family, his wife, been praying for him. Some friends here at Kingsway been praying for him for a long time. And I watched him get baptized and a whole bunch of us clapped and cheered. And now he's going to die. And I told him on the other side of that last breath, Dave, his life forever. And people have questions like, Matt, do you think he's going to heaven? And I keep telling him, I'm not Jesus, but he believes in Jesus. And my Bible tells me that's enough. So friend, I don't want you to leave here today and think you got it all under control because you don't. Control is an illusion. At some point, you must take that step and decide to go all in on him. With Half in with him makes you loud to see you. Half in with him means nothing with him. What we're going to do right now is uh, I'm going to pray. Don't start wrestling. Just listen. I'm going to pray. I'm not even going to ask you to stand up, okay? We're going to have an extended worship time where we just sing praises to our King Jesus who died and raised to give us life. And while we're singing, you can see we have communion trays, tables set up. There's a box on the table for your offering. Look, when we do this, sometimes people forget to give. I'm just encouraging you to give. Make it a part of your worship experience. But while we're singing, we're going to do some songs. Some of them are new to you. Some of them are. I'm just going to encourage you to go and take the bread and take the juice that reminds you of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Worship him as you take it. Celebrate what he's done and what he's continuing to do in you. And if you need to do business with God, 
I encourage you to sit where you are, kneel down, use the front of the stage. I don't care where you go, but do business with God. And if you're ready to give your life to Jesus, you're ready to respond to him and you've never done that, maybe today is the day you get baptized. Would you go to my left, your right, under the screen? We'll have some staff over there. They could talk to you and explain it to you. But do not wait for me to have to visit you in the hospital. Let me pray for you. Father God, Lord, we come before you with complete confidence, not in our flesh and our good deeds, but in you. You are our only hope. God, as we open up Revelation, this book that is a blessing, if we listen and obey, God, I pray you would fulfill your promise to bless both me for reading it and teaching it, and all of us for obeying it. And Father, I pray right now in this place, as we seek your face, God, come move in a powerful way stir in our affections for you, convict us of our sin, and lead us into repentance. In Jesus' precious and holy name.